word for it. Well, we're in the midst of an extended study of First Peter. Today we're in the second chapter. I'm going to pick up our reading in verse 4. I'm going to read through verse 6, even though we're just going to be focusing attention on verses 4 and 5 today. But I want to read those verses together. So 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you again so thankful you are a God who has spoken and that you've made what you've said available to us. And even more, you tell us that your indwelling Holy Spirit within us will lead us into truth to illumine our minds and hearts so that we not only can read, but you plant in us the things that you've said. So Lord, would you do that work this day? Make it clear to us what you're saying so that in our beliefs and our attitudes and our actions, we could be in line with your purpose and plan. Give us alertness, I pray. We put our time in your hands, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you've been with me as we've been working our way through 1 Peter, uh, chapter 1 ended in the first couple of verses in chapter 3, we're all focused on the central role that the Word of God plays in our life. The first chapter ended with reminding us that we were born again by that Word implanted imperishable seed. When we repented and believed the Gospel, God's Word in the Gospel, we were born again. And that being born again changed us at the very core of our being. And that happened because God, as we saw, planted an imperishable seed in us. The Greek spora is the term used here. In First John, he uses the word sperma, which is the difference. They're both referring to seed, one generally for seed, the other for seed that's been sown. Uh, but they're both referring to the same idea. God has planted something in us, a new life within us. And the wonder of an imperishable seed, as the word spora is translated here, is that when a seed sprouts, it can't unsprout. Uh, you can affect how fruitful it becomes by different things, of course. Uh, and God has called for us to live in such a way that we might be fruitful. But you can't unsprout the seed. You can't stuff it back inside. That's the reality of it. And our new birth is therefore this sprouted seed, uh, an unchangeable, permanent, imperishable sort of reality for us. Uh, and no one is saved unless that seed is sprouted. And no seed gets sprouted unless the gospel is proclaimed. Now, whether that gospel is proclaimed in a public meeting, whether it's shared one-on-one -on -one with somebody, whether it's something they've read, whether they're in the scriptures and God uses the scriptures directly to do it, there's got to be the gospel shared, the word, before there can be new life in anyone. And uh, so, therefore, the word of God is central to that. The second chapter began by reminding us that the word of God plays an indispensable role in our growth, not only in our salvation. We can't be saved without it, and we can't grow without it. 
there's no true spiritual growth in our life without the Word of God. That is what God uses to transform us. That was underscored, of course, even in the Old Testament. Do you remember Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, which was then later quoted by Christ in the Gospels? He said, He humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, so that which you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man doesn't live by bread alone. And here's the word. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. <laughs> and that is true for the redeemed believer. You live by his word. Now, of course, his Holy Spirit empowers us, but it is his living and active word that is the foundation of any change, any growth, any discipleship in our lives. There's other factors, our obedience, our surrender, and so forth, but you can't grow without the word. You've got to have the word there to grow, just like you can't be born again unless the word has been shared. So centrality of the scriptures. And God says, therefore, I want you, as he put it last week, to long for the word like a newborn baby craves for the mother's milk. I want you to have that craving and longing for my word. For a baby, when they don't crave the milk, it's very unnatural. The natural thing is to crave milk. And with a baby, if the baby's not interested in eating, we say, wait, this is a sign that something's not right. Uh, and in the spiritual walk, when there's somebody who's been redeemed, and they don't crave the word, then you say there's something spiritually wrong here. There's some serious problem undergirding it. What's the point? God tells me, I don't have to minister to anybody to get them to crave the word. Uh, that's a natural condition. I need to teach the Word, and the Word itself will rebuke and correct and do what it has to do to help them explain why they maybe are not longing for it in the way they need to be. But I don't have to create the longing. God created that within the heart of the redeemed believer. Uh, they can do a lot to quench it, perhaps, but God's done that. Well, we're to choose to feed upon that Word as we ended last time because we've already tasted some of the milk and found it was good. Uh, you remember Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. He ends here in verse 3 by reminding us, hey, you've already tasted the word. If you're saved, you've already tasted it. The gospel proved true to you. It was good. You found new life. You found forgiveness. You found acceptance in the sight of the Lord, been indwelt by his spirit. It only stands to reason that everything else God has to say would be good too. So our motive is tied to what we've discovered in salvation. If I can discover that through what God has said, then what else he has said is going to be good, and I need to be in his word to get into it. And by the way, the vast majority of God's word is not about salvation. It is about growth having been saved. Now, what it is, where, where it speaks to salvation, praise God. I mean, that's, we need that. Nobody's saved without it. But the vast majority of the scripture is given over to growth, not being saved. Uh, and therefore, that part is going to be good because we found what it had to say about salvation is good. Well, today, in these verses that we continue now forward into in the second chapter of 1 Peter, God is shifting focus just a bit. To this point, he's been talking about what his word is doing within us. 
both in terms of salvation, in terms of growth, you see. So he's been focused on that sort of imagery, new birth and growth. Now, God shifts a bit in the focus here. And again, it's God speaking this. Peter's writing it down, but Holy Spirit giving us God's word. God is shifting now to from what he's doing within us to what he's doing with us. Slight change, but an important one. He is now talking about what I'm going to do with you as my redeemed child. And the image has shifted in these verses I read to you from the images used about new birth and growing seed and that sort of picture. And the images now we encounter in this passage are construction images. Having started out my life as a teenager in the work world in construction, having been in civil engineering as well, uh, construction has a special... Uh, a special attraction to me. It, it, I, I like those images. It's helpful to me to see them. Uh, my wife, been raised on a big farm, and uh, she, she was an agriculture person. Uh, the, the images God uses about uh, seeds and growth and all of that have special stuff for her, I'm sure, and for others of us too. But uh, construction, oh, I get a hold of that. Got my get my hammer, the saws. I, I got that down, you know. So this is the image now that we're encountering. Uh, The image shifts to a construction project. And in these verses that I read to you, we learn something about the living stone that is actually the cornerstone of a construction project. And how God is is taking us and making us into living stones that he is using to build a spiritual house. so you got the you got the construction idea on now. You see how he's so. What he has to tell us fits into that image, a construction project. So let's examine this spiritual construction project just a little bit further. He says, "As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house." to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual construction project going on as you come to him. This spiritual project is only involving those who have come to him. God is not addressing in these verses anything about the unsaved. He is talking about the redeemed, the people who have come to to him. And as we've come to him, and as we continue to come to him, God said, I'm doing something with you. I am involved in a special construction project. That coming to him begins by turning to Christ as Savior, repenting and believing in the gospel, and being born anew, as we've been looking in these preceding verses. And that coming to him involves discipleship as we continue to grow and as we continue to be who he's called us to be, longing and yearning for his word. He says, now as you're coming to him, understand I'm doing something. I'm doing something to you. As you, on an individual level, have come to Christ through salvation, and as an individual you are determining to grow, he says, now I'm going to do something with you corporately. I've been doing stuff with you individually. Now I'm going to do something corporately. And what I'm going to do corporately is I'm going to take you along with others who have come to me, and I am going to build a spiritual house. A spiritual house. And he uses this image now of the believers as a spiritual house 
Now, Jesus uses that sort of construction image. For example, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Paul, under direction of the Holy Spirit, uses this construction image that we're talking about here. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, listen to these words. So then, you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on a foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone, in whom this whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple to the Lord. And in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You see the construction image? Uh, God is doing something corporately, with his people. They don't become his people except individually. Nobody's ever been become a child of God because there's been a group. They come to God through the gospel. But once you come to him, then God does something group-wise. He connects you in a way. A construction image. In the New Covenant era, the church era of which we find ourselves. God is involved in building a spiritual house. In the Old Covenant era, in the Old Testament era, God was involved in building a physical house. A house made out of brick and mortar and wood and cloth and so forth. What do I mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament... As we read through it, we discover that the very the presence of God... Now, certainly God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. But in a special way, the Shekinah glory of God, the presence of the Lord, visited in two places. Number one, in the tabernacle built in the wilderness, you remember. So the Shekinah glory of God came upon it. And so in a special way, you had an encounter with the presence of God as you came to the tabernacle. Later on, as the temple was built, the same reality happened in that the Shekinah glory of God inhabited the temple in a special way. So you'd come into that temple and you'd encounter God in a special sort of personal encounter. Uh, that's why the Holy of, Holy was in, Holy of Holies was there, so that you could have that encounter. That was... Again, not a denial of the omnipresence of the Lord, part of his very attribute, but it was a re- an affirmation to us that in a special sense we can encounter the presence of God in this place. And of course, in both the tabernacle and in the temple, that was the place of sacrifice where something could be done for the sin which separates us from God. So you follow? In the Old Testament, there was a construction project, and he gave great details about how to make the tabernacle, how to make the temple, and so forth. Because the building of that temple was important. The building of that structure was important. The facility created the presence of the Lord. It was a facility-linked presence. Do you follow what that's about? Now, The wonder of the New Covenant era, of the church era, is that we discover that the presence of God is found in a spiritual house that he's building, not a physical building any longer. Now that's a remarkable change, actually. Uh, Let's expand on it. The presence of the Lord in that special sort of Shekinah glory sense 
in the new covenant era of the church that we're a part of is found within a relational dynamic of the people of God as they meet together, as they are in koinonia with one another. Why? Because God is building it there. God is doing something with it there that previously he was doing with a physical body, a physical facility, the tent of the tabernacle, the building of the temple. The spiritual house that God is now building, he's intending to be a place where his people dwell together, his children dwell together, all of whom have been adopted into his family through Christ, you remember. So that in their connection together, there would be a sense of God's presence in his people. In the Old Testament, it was a facility-based presence. One could certainly encounter God outside of the tabernacle or, or temple, but nonetheless, in a special way, the presence of the Lord was there. In the New Covenant era, the presence of the Lord, we encounter that privately, personally, but in a special sense, the presence of the Lord is no longer linked facility-wise, but it is linked to a spiritual house. And the spiritual house is where his people gather together. And God is using those people to create a place where we encounter God in a special way, in vital fellowship with him. This is a very interesting image, isn't it? And it underscores why body life is so important, why the body is of great concern to the Lord. By the way, this passage is not saying, and let me repeat this, this passage is not saying that we get a sense of God's presence in a special way when people happen to be singing together. Uh, well, that may or may not be true. It's not what this passage is saying. The presence that God is talking about isn't coming because of a worship experience. It's coming because of the relational connection of the people. Let me say another aside to that, and I won't get distracted on this too far even though I would love to, be, love to do it. You and I don't have to ask God to be in our presence as we worship. That's heresy. That's not biblical. He is there. If we're His redeemed people, and if we're not, hey, forget it. You know. But He's there. That's the reason I refuse to sing a song in this church that invites God to come and be present with us in something. A lot of songs like that in today's world, and they're all unbiblical. Not bad intended, but they're unbiblical. He's there. So it's not something we discover in the worship per se, although, granted, I'm like you. Sometimes I sense God's presence very close in the midst of singing together with his people and all of that. So I'm not denying that there's a sense of that, but that's not what this passage is talking about. God is saying, you encounter me... When my people, redeemed, are interacting together and I'm building them into something where you encounter me in a way, if you were an Old Testament person, you would have encountered me in the tabernacle or you would have encountered me in the temple. I'm doing something to cause that. The reality now that God is identifying for us is that God's special presence has shifted from a physical facility to a spiritual facility. A house made up of the people. 
in their interactions together. I was thinking of how other passages underscore this for us, and I'll take a moment and look at a couple of them with you, because this is such a crucial concept for us to grab a hold of. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22, it says, In him you also are being built together. And notice how he goes on, into a dwelling place for God. Isn't that interesting? Uh, Same terminology used in the Old Testament about the facility, the tabernacle, the temple. He says, in the New Testament, in this era, you're being built together to be a dwelling place for God. Well, God doesn't need any dwelling place. Didn't he tell us in the Old Testament, you know, what can you build for me? Well, yeah, he says that in the New Testament too. Nonetheless, God in the Old Testament made his presence available in a special way in the tabernacle and in the temple. So also, doctrinally, theologically in the New Testament, God makes his presence available to us in a special manner in his people as we are united together in him. I was thinking of John 4 and Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. Uh, starting in verse 20 of that fourth chapter, it says, our, she's saying, Our fathers worshipped on the mountain. You say Jerusalem's the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Lord. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. In other words, the facility location is irrelevant. The heart is what's relevant. In the New Covenant, always been true, but especially in the New Covenant. He says, so listen, it's not going to Jerusalem. It's not being up here on the hill. Being right. And that's what God is seeking, to worship him. Sort of like Matthew 18, where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in the midst of them. You know, that's that's where I'm at. Uh, I think, by the way, this building that God is talking about here, this spiritual building, explains why the emphasis was there in Chapter 1 in verse 22, uh, where he emphasized the importance of love so much. Remember, purifying your soul by your obedience to the truth. So now show a sincere brotherly love and then love one another earnestly from a pure heart, both phileo and agape being used there. That's why God was so concerned that the church be a place where people are expressing that kind of love. The, the family warmth and the selflessness, putting people above our own. It's important because that's the presence that's the place where the presence of God is supposed to be being seen in this era. Not because of the arrangement of the temple, not because of the arrangement of the tabernacle, but because of the condition of the people as they gather. And God says, listen, if this is where, I get, where I'm going to be dwelling by the Spirit, and it tells us He is, I want it to be a place marked by phileo and agape. I don't want it to be this biting and devouring one another thing we talked about. I don't want it to be a place where uh, people gather to be entertained. I don't want it to be a place where people gather to attack one another. I want it to be a place where people gather who know Christ as Savior, who really see each other as brothers and sisters, and they try to have family. They love each other. They, they care about They put the needs of other people above them. And he said, that's the place I want to dwell I'm going to dwell within them. And if they're not being who I'm calling them to be, I'm going to spend my time disciplining them as a people 
till they do have phileo and agape. I'm not using them except as a negative example in the world I'm trying to reach. I think God takes this stuff pretty serious, really. And uh, that's what he's driving home to us. He says, I'm the master builder, and I've got a project going on here. Are you with me or are you against me? He's building a spiritual house. He tells us another thing here. He says, listen, in this spiritual house, in this spiritual construction project, Jesus Christ is the living stone. And then in verse 6, which we won't so much look at this week, but he says this, this living stone is actually the cornerstone, which is a word that has no meaning except in a construction concept. You know, that cornerstone was, as we'll see next time, was a foundational point in the construction and the engineering of any building. It was the cornerstone. He says, listen, Jesus Christ... He's, a li- he's the living stone. He's the cornerstone of this project that I'm building. We've learned that Jesus Christ is the living water. We've learned that Jesus Christ is the living bread, John 4, John 6, among other things. Now we learn he's the living stone. Now why would God use that image of Jesus Christ being the living stone? And the answer to that's pretty straightforward. In the Old Testament... The core image of the law of God, the word of God, was seen in the graven stone. Remember on the mountain where the Ten Commandments were given? Certainly not all the law, not all of the Old Testament was put, in, put into the stone, but the stone became an image of it. The, the absolute nature of God's truth. We had the tablets, and Moses had the law on the tablets, written down on the stone tablets. We come to the New Testament, as John 1 tells us, and this one, who is the Word, Word was with God, Word was God, uh, this one was made flesh and dwelt among us. So while in the Old Testament we had the Word written down in the tablets of stone and so forth, uh, in the New Testament, now the one who is the Word is made flesh. He's alive. And therefore, in the New Testament, the Word of God is now written in living stone. People say, well, then that means we don't have to pay attention to the Bible. We'll just try to think in our minds, well, what would Jesus do? That's exactly what Satan wants you to do. Because you don't have any idea what Jesus would do unless you read this. That's, that's how you find out about it. It doesn't occur to you naturally to figure out how Jesus lived. You have to, you have to find out. And then the living stone operationalizes all of that truth for us. So he said, this one is the living stone. And God views this living stone, this cornerstone, in a special way. He says, this one, in the sight of God, is chosen and precious. In this whole building construction project, God has a particular attitude about the cornerstone. He says, this one, chosen. I chose him, sent him into the world to die for you. Raise him from the dead. He's coming again for us. And uh, you wouldn't even be my children if it wasn't for what he did. He's precious. Chosen and precious. And those who are truly his children see him the same way. In, in the seventh verse, which I didn't read to you, the second chapter, the King James Version and the New International Version translate it this way. Now to him, now to you who believe, the stone is precious. I like the, that translation. I think it's accurate contextually to what's going on here. Uh, God says, hey, you know how I see this living stone? Chosen and precious. And God says, you know, 
those that have found him as Savior also see him as precious to them. But the truth of the matter, just like in the stone word of the Old Testament, and now in the living word, the living stone of the New Testament, people respond to God's word differently. Lot rejected the word in the stone. And a lot reject the living word as well. But some come to him, which is, again, the context of our passage. And he says, for those of you that come to him, I've got some things to talk to you about, about what I'm going to do with you now, because you've been redeemed, born anew, adopted into my family. As you come to him, the one who's chosen and precious, I've got some work I'm going to do with you, and I'm going to put you into a construction project. He says, you yourselves, like living stones, verse 5, are being built up as a spiritual house. He says, okay, you've come to know him, the one who's really the living stone and the cornerstone of this project. Understand, I'm making you into living stones that make up this construction project. Once we've been redeemed, born anew, and dwelt by the Holy Spirit, we become living stones in our own right. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, separated from God, have been made alive with him, new creations. We've been indwelt by the very Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And God is at work in us with his word. He's changing us. And so we become living stones as well. Stones for what? For building the spiritual facility. I was thinking of the, of the picture we had with the, with the uh, photos that have been taken of our, of our sister church in, uh, in, uh, in Zambia, you remember, where we helped them initially to, to, to get some, we sent them some money so they could buy the clay and put together the, the stones that they were going to sun dry and then, I mean, the bricks, they made bricks out of it and then they were going to put the building together and, then, and that building did get together that way. But those photos were so dramatic because we saw them digging the, digging the clay out first and then you saw out on the, out on the field all of these bricks laying out, and they were getting sun-dried so they could be part of that construction project. Why am I a li- What's my living stone all about? I'm one of the bricks, the spiritual brick, and so are you. You say, well, that's not very complimentary. It means you were just a bunch of mud. Well, yeah, that's pretty much the case. <laughs> Isn't it wonderful that we weren't redeemed because of us, but because of him? You know, we, you know. Who are we but mud anyway, ultimately apart from him? But God makes us into this brick. And God is building a building just like they did in in Zambia there, in the Mutondo town. He's making a building. Not a physical building now, but a building in which I'm a brick. That's kind of amazing. God's working. And, by the way, the living stone is turning me as a living stone with him into a light in the darkness. What God is saying is that I'm, I'm creating a corporate witness of the living stone out of you who are living stones. I'm, I'm creating a corporate witness. Another way of giving light to a lost world. I am showing them the witness of Christ. I am showing them the witness of one who comes to know Christ and supposedly is changed and new life in him. And I'm also 
reaching out into a lost and dark world with a corporate witness of stones that have been built together into a facility, into a house, a spiritual house. God says, I care that much about a lost world. I'm going to give them three forms of witness here. (laughs) Give them the witness of the living word. I'm going to give them the witness of individuals transformed by the living word. And then I'm going to give them a witness of how I can take those individuals and form them into something that also demonstrates to my glory. The corporate witness is the church family, the spiritual house. But here's the deal in construction. Shifting back into the construction mentality here. I was thinking, okay, bricks, living stones being built together. You know, one problem with living stone is it doesn't always stay where you put it. I was thinking if I was trying to lay in brick walls, and I've done that, uh, not great at Mason Rick, but I've done that, and maybe lay up some lay up some cinder block. I've done that. Uh, don't do a great job with that either, but I've, I've done that part of the construction. Normally, we sub that out to, to other people. I, I would do that. Can you imagine trying to put together a wall? Like I got some cinder blocks here. I've laid this line out. I go get a cup of coffee. I come back, and this, the the cinder block are scattered different places. They didn't stay in the wall. You know, it's like, oh man, go back to the beginning, lay it all out again, go after another, have lunch break, come back and. These crazy blocks are scattered here, there, and everywhere. They don't want to be the wall that God put, you know. That's the problem with this spiritual construction project we're talking about. Uh, God's working a miracle with the people. We're living stones. But it's a miracle requiring our cooperation. As living stones, we have to be surrendered stones. We have to say, okay, Lord, you put me where you want me. You give me the gifts you want to give me. You plant me where you want me to be. I'll surrender to you. I'll be who you called me to be. But if I'm rebelling against that, it doesn't matter what mortar joint you put around me. I'll find a way to get out of that place in the wall, and I'll go over here. I think that's a good description, by the way, of why the churches have so many problems. Because people are constantly jumping off the wall. You know, saying, oh, I don't want that part of the wall. I'm going to be over here. Living stones. God is building us into a spiritual house in which he dwells, tells us. Not a building, but people. By the way, another thing about that, and I want to, I want to make this plain. No one is part of that building who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior. People can attend a church not knowing Christ as Savior. Maybe they're coming because they're inquiring, they want to find out more about it, fine. No one, no one has become a living stone apart from an encounter with the living stone. No one is part of the church unless redeemed. That's the truth. Uh, Lots of implications of that, by the way. I will withstand the temptation to get into. But nonetheless, the church is made up of the redeemed. That's, That's all. Not every church group is made up only of redeemed, but... The the true church, what God is building, is made up of that. Uh, Well, he says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Here's, here's Here's the amazing thing. In this construction project, I'm not only part of the wall... 
you know, I'm the stone, the brick that God's using, and he's making the spiritual wall out of it. I'm part of the action inside the wall. Isn't that amazing? I'm part of the wall, but I'm part of the action. In the New Testament, all those who know Jesus Christ are priests unto him. Not just a select group. The New Testament knows nothing, let me repeat it in even stronger uh, decibels. The New Testament knows nothing of a priestly class. In the New Testament, we're all priests. One of the great, one of the great hallmarks of the Reformation period was the priesthood of believers. I mean, there weren't separations. Sure, we have different gifts, different roles, but we're all in the same rank. The Old Testament knew a lot about rank, and God initiated it that way. Only the priests could be involved in certain activities, certainly the, the sacrifices that would allow people temporarily at least to have sin covered and come before the Lord. The New Testament did away with all of that. Why? Because we now have a high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have one who offered his life once for all for the coverage of sin. The priesthood of believers. Pastors are not priests. Let me say it again. Pastors are not priests. Only one priest, in that sense, in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus Christ. We're not priests. We're all on the same level. We're all brothers and sisters in Christ. He gives us sovereignly distributed different gifts, different talents, different calls. But we're still all on the same level. I don't need anybody between me and God anymore. I did in the Old Testament. I had to go through His divinely ordained process to find temporary covering for sin and to be restored in relation with God. In the New Testament, no such thing. No such thing. We stand before God. Different gifts, different roles, same ranks. When I'm in the academic world, and had been for many years, and many times I was required in that role to be in certain positions, I proudly wore my doctoral robes. I have beautiful robes doctoral robes of all of the paraphernalia that goes with it, as I would be involved in graduations for others receiving their doctorates. I mean, you'd be impressed by that. doesn't get much use anymore, but uh, you'd be impressed in that. Why? And I had no problem with it. Why? Because in that context, rank did mean something, not on a pride level, but it meant that you were the one who knew what the people came to study. And you were the one that was ascertaining whether they learned it. And therefore, you had this robe to wear to designate you as one of the faculty, graduate faculty in this case. I have never worn, nor will I ever wear, a robe in the ministry. Because there is no rank in the ministry. We have differing roles. But we're all brothers and sisters. You see, all of that's been removed in the New Covenant era. Am I condemning somebody that wears it? No, I just think they're misinformed, that's all. I don't think their motives are bad, but they're misinformed. We're all on the same rank. 
So there's no royal robes and collars here. <laughs> and so you're not going to see them. Uh, now, he says as priests, I want you involved in offering spiritual sacrifices. And we can spend a lot of time on this, but I'm just going to cover it just briefly. Uh, you and I, as the priesthood of believers, are not involved in offering sin sacrifices to God. There's no sacrament that we're involved in. Why? Because our lamb's already been sacrificed. He hasn't sacrificed repeatedly. Once for all. He died. And then he rose again. And he ascended in heaven, he's going to come again. I mean, that aspect of the priestly role, we don't do anything with that. There's no continuing sin sacrifice. Something that the priest has to do in order to appropriate and benefit the rest of the people to get some of the grace that God has to give them. That is not biblical, brothers and sisters. That is not biblical. So if we don't have to offer sacrifices for sin, what in the world do you do as a priest? Well, good question. I'm glad you asked it. We offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God as a priest. What would they involve? Romans 12.1 tells you, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. If you're a priest, and all of you are, if you know Christ, what are you offering to God? What God said, what do I want you doing in this spiritual house? Presenting your body surrendered to me. You have insulted your position as a priest of God in the New Covenant sense, if you are not surrendered, if you are not living surrendered as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you have insulted God and you have betrayed the position of priesthood that He's bestowed upon you. It's that serious, brothers and sisters. Does that mean I lose my salvation? No, but you lose your joy, you lose your power, you lose pleasing God. I'd say that's pretty important. I get more worked up than that when I'm in a theological school and I'm battering these things around with people, but that's the truth. That's the truth, brothers and sisters. In Hebrews chapter 13, we read these words. He says, through him then, let's not, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. Why? Because we can offer it up. We're all priests now. A sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Okay, well, I'm a priest. What am I supposed to be doing? Being surrendered, first of all. Not just me as a pastor. Everybody's supposed to be. And secondly, I'm supposed to praise God, offer praises. I'm supposed to be offering good works, surrendered to his purposes and carrying them out. I'm supposed to be practicing stewardship. As he blesses me, I bless others. That's the sacrifice of the priest in the spiritual house that God is constructing. I was thinking of Psalm 51. For you do not delight in sacrifice, or I'd give it to you. For you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not neglect and despise. Humble, contrite hearts, surrendered, saying, Your Lord, Your will, what I want to do. Your glory is what I want to live for. God says, that's your role as a priest. We're all priests. You don't have any choice about it. Your choice is whether you're going to be a good one or a rotten one. Sadly, many redeemed believers are rotten priests. 
Don't be a rotten priest. Rejoice in the opportunity that we have as redeemed people whose sin has already been covered and have been given a special role of priests in this spiritual house God is constructing to make sure that you're surrendered, that you're praising Him, using your life for good works, stewardship of whatever He provides for you, and have a humble, contrite heart before God. There's your task. So if you're looking on your job description, you don't have to gather wood, you know, for the, for the sacrifice. You don't have to split the animal apart. These are the things that you do. All right, so here's the point. God's making a spiritual house. You're part of it. You're in it. You don't have any choice whether you're going to be there. The only choice is whether you're going to stay on the wall and whether you're going to do the priest work that he's assigned to you. And you say, well, I don't want to choose to be there. All right, God's going to give you that right. But because he's a loving Heavenly Father, he's going to discipline the heck out of you if you're not doing what he asks you to do. That's basically what it comes down to. Uh, Spiritual work. Saved individually. Then God does something corporate with us. Next time, Lord willing, we'll look at these upcoming verses where we talk about the cornerstone more. We talk about the capstone because both terminologies are used here. And he adds a third image to this whole construction project and he says, stumbling block. So we got cornerstone, capstone, stumbling block. Father, we thank you for a chance to be together this day, to be part of a spiritual house, not this building, but the people, and together to seek to give praise to you encourage one another. Be with us in this day, this week ahead, that we might live lives honoring to you and focus our hearts not only on the cross, but the wonder of the resurrection. And we'll give you thanks and praise as you do that, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.